Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am really privileged today to have Dr. Lena Wen. Dr. Wen is the Baltimore City Health Commissioner. Uh, she got that job at, depending on which online biography you read, 31 or 32. Uh, she was a Rhodes Scholar, an ER doctor. She is a fascinating person. She's done a bunch of super highly viewed TED Talks, has written a book on how to get better information out of your doctors. And she is bringing together a bunch of things that are obsessions of mine and obsessions of this show. City government, public health, the differences, by the way, between public health and health care. We talk a lot in this discussion about immigration, about the opioid crisis, about health disparities in Baltimore, particularly the way they got brought to the fore after Freddie Gray. We talk about how it is hard to help people sometimes, particularly the hardest to help folks. How do you get chosen for a job like Baltimore City Health Commissioner? I did not realize, actually, it's a nationwide application process. I thought it would have been more of an appointment. So I learned a lot in this. I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Wen. She's super smart, doing very, very, very interesting work in a very important space. We think a lot about healthcare as it relates to hospitals and doctor's offices. We think a lot about politics as it relates to the presidential race and national politics. She's really taking this at a city level, really taking it in the public health direction. This is stuff which really is much, I think, more important than we give it credit for most of the time and is worth giving a lot more focus. So I'm very grateful to her for coming by today. And I think you all are going to enjoy this a lot. As always, got a couple requests for you. Please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, where we talk deep policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Please rate this podcast on iTunes or share it with your friends on Facebook or Twitter or email or whatever sharing tools you use. And finally, please keep your guest ideas and feedback coming at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Without further ado, here is Baltimore City Health Commissioner, Dr. Lena Wen. All right. Well, Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for coming. I'm really happy to be here. I'm a little bit intimidated to to be here. I listen to so many of your other podcast guests and Cory Booker is one of my favorite people in the world. That Trevor is, Noah, I listen to almost every night. That is very kind. We're going to make those conversations look like trash. 
<laughs> Everybody's going to forget about them after this. Uh, so I was reading into your biography, and I hadn't realized that your family came here as dissidents after the Tiananmen Square massacre. What was that context? My parents and I came when I was eight, and um, my mother initially settled in Logan, Utah. Wow. That was the option that she was actually she was given two options. She was told that she could go either to Chicago, Illinois, or Logan, Utah. And she chose Logan, Utah. You know, there was no internet at the time that we could access to. Oh. There was no Google that we could use. And she asked one of her professors, right? You always go to the people that you trust. Uh -huh. And her mentor said, Utah is where it's at. And so we ended up in this <laughs> tiny little town on the border of, of Utah and Idaho. And that's where I lived for two and a half years and learned English. Without in any way dismissing the virtues of the great state of Utah. Do you know why her mentor was such a partisan of Logan over Chicago? At the time, people just know what they know. And, you know, I, I have to say that I'm very thankful that we ended up there. I learned English very quickly because there was no other option. We met some really incredible people who are very kind to us. I mean, we came to the U.S. with $40 with nobody that we knew in Utah, nobody that we knew on the West Coast, really no family except my mother's sister was in New York City. And so we were so disconnected and really had a tough time making it. Um, my parents worked and they were both professionals in China. My, my mother taught at a, at a university. My father was an engineer. And in Utah and then subsequently in LA, they worked any job that they could find. I know my mother, for example, worked as a maid and worked at a video store, worked in hotels doing cleaning while she was trying to get her cert certification to do teaching. My father, who was an engineer, did all kinds of odd jobs and delivered newspapers until he could work his way up in a newspaper company in LA. And so this is what we did, and I think it's the typical immigrant story that they came because they wanted a better life for me and eventually for my sister. Uh, I want to come back to your parents' jobs in a second, but why did your family leave China? My parents left because they and their families suffered a lot during the Cultural Revolution. I have to admit that I don't know a lot of it. I don't know a lot of it probably because they find it hard to tell these stories, and I see it in my job in Baltimore City as well, that a lot of things that happen to people are issues that we decide to repress, that we decide to not talk about for any number of reasons. It drags up old memories. It also is difficult because they're, as much as we might want to talk about them, there are still people involved in these stories who are alive, and we may not want to implicate for any number of reasons. I mean, I find it difficult to talk about some of my upbringing and the issues that I faced with members of my family who were involved in violence and who have addictions and mental health challenges because some of them are still alive. And it's difficult for me to talk about it for, for that reason. But my parents and I eventually sought political asylum, were granted it, and were able to stay in America. Do you think American society or American culture in general overemphasizes the benefits of talking everything out, of sharing everything, of working through everything? That's an interesting question. I've Thank been, you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll continue to say that throughout. But um, 
I've learned over time how to adjust to that level of openness and transparency that hasn't been part of my upbringing and my culture. I think there's a lot in my culture of of you got to keep it inside and you got to be strong and you got to do whatever it is that you can do and not just let's talk it through and let's work it out. But at the same time, learning how to do that has given me a different understanding of myself and other people. I hid, for example, things that were shameful about myself or that I thought were shameful about myself for so long. I hid the fact that I stuttered, which is kind of strange to even say that because how could you hide something? At what age did you stutter? I stuttered for as long as I can remember. From the time that I was little in China, I remember not wanting to go to school, to the first day of school, because I knew that they would be asking me for my name. And my name was the one thing that I couldn't substitute for. Everything else, I learned how to get around words that I thought would get me stuck. Mm -hmm. So if I were asking for a pencil but couldn't say pencil, I would say something to write with. Or I didn't have to ask for a sandwich. I could ask for lunch. There were many other things that I could substitute but not my name. Mm. And I remember thinking that from a very early age of I would avoid all these different circumstances, but that ended up being that I ended up avoiding making friends. I ended up avoiding letting people be close to me. And it took me many years, actually took me until my mid-20s to really acknowledge that. Yet being open about stuttering, being open about the shame that I felt over all those years has been transformative in my life. So I guess I can't fault American culture too much for helping me to understand who I am. I had a debilitating stutter as a child until... I guess I was about six or seven, something like that. I developed almost overnight when I was, I think I'm told three or four, just went from being able to talk smoothly to I almost couldn't speak. And I had like years of intensive speech therapy and I I don't remember much of it. I, I remember very sort of odd bits and pieces. But between that and I've always had a bit of a lisp, I very much relate to the continuous mental branching of what word are you going to say versus what word are you not going to say. Um, When my lisp was worse as a kid, I remember always looking for ways to get away from words like success that have that double S at the end, because that was really bad. Um, And it's this funny sort of constantly trying to stay one step ahead of your own sentence. Isn't it crazy also how much of your brain is taken up by Mm -hmm. thinking about what you should be saying? I mean, that's something that I had to come to terms with when I finally went to a speech therapist in my mid-20s. And she said, you have to work on not substituting, just say what you want to say. That should be the success, not not stuttering, but saying what you want to say when you want to say it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, first of all, how can I do it? But once I started doing it, it was, wow, I have, I'm freeing up all this brain capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my, in my late teens, I went back to a speech therapist to try to work on my lisp. And it was very funny. It was the only time in my life when Rudy Giuliani has been a model because she's like, well, on the one hand, these things are harder to change as an adult. On the other hand, Rudy Giuliani has a lisp and he does fine. I was like, well, I guess he does do fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I completely agree. There's some amount of it which is trying to work through it and then some amount which is trying to accept it. But but to go back to the underlying uh, the, the underlying question here. The reason I wanted to come back to your parents' occupation is that I'm always fascinated by this part of the immigrant story. So my father is an immigrant as well. He came here from Brazil, but he came as an academic immigrant. So he studied mathematics in Brazil and came here and and, and taught and teaches mathematics now. 
But I know so many immigrant families where, particularly when they left for uh, political reasons, went from having a highly skilled profession in their home country, engineer, doctor, professor, and then came to America and had to take jobs that were less skilled in the sense of credentialism at the very least. And I'm curious, did you ever speak with your father about that? Or did you ever observe how he absorbed the difference between what he was doing occupationally in China and then what he was doing here to ensure his family could survive and prosper? My father and my mother, too. My mother passed away, but they're both such private people. And there's so much of their past that they don't want to talk about. I think there is this sense, and I I knew my my mother a lot better than I know my, my father even still, but my mother was this person who just always, she worked hard all the time, and that for her was the greatest badge of honor to be able to say, I am working to provide for my, my family. My father did the same thing. I never heard them complain about anything. My father working, when he first came, he had difficulty finding a job. Unlike my, my mother who spoke fairly fluent English, my father didn't speak English at all. And I was eight. I learned English very quickly in school. My, my father never really did. And so for him, working these very basic jobs that he was far overqualified for and yet felt like he couldn't express himself because of language. I mean, he worked at a cheese factory. He worked washing dishes. He delivered newspapers. He drove trucks. I mean, he did all these things that, you know, he was such a leader in China. He was seen as a leader in his group of friends, his colleagues. He led movements that I don't know much about. But I think for him to come to a country where he now can't express himself and can't advance in the way that he was used to in his in his peer group, I think must have been extremely difficult. But I never heard him or my mother ever complain, not once, about how hard they worked, how tired they were. My sister was born after we came to the U.S. because of the one-child policy in China. And they worked so hard to provide for her as well at a time when, I mean, we grew up, eventually we were living in, in Los Angeles in some fairly rough areas. I know you're from the Southern California. Where were you living? We lived in East L.A. Mm-hmm. For a time we lived in Compton. Um, and this was what era? This was, so we came to the U.S. in 1991 about, so early 90s was so when we were. So this is a very rough time in that part of L.A. Exactly. And we had, where well, we saw our neighbors have gunshot wounds. I saw another neighbor child who was also an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant, go without access to care and literally die from an asthma attack because their family was too afraid to call for for help. I mean, we saw terrible things. We saw the effects of the crack epidemic and mental health issues and violence and just that trauma all the time in our communities. We also didn't have money. I mean, my parents were working menial jobs where they could potentially be fired at any moment. And so We always worried about whether we could make rent. We didn't know whether we would have food that night or the next day. I mean, I find it difficult. I don't know if you can tell this now, but I find it difficult to talk about these experiences now, in part because my parents are such proud people. I think that they would want for me and my sister to be judged based on the accomplishments that we've had and the things that we are doing now and not by the hardships that we may have faced before, because I think in Chinese culture, that's just seen as something that you have to get through. And I find it difficult also in Baltimore City, in my current role, to share these stories with the residents in my community. 
I don't want it to seem like it's gratuitous. I'm not trying to say that I understand their experience because I have no idea. I don't know what it's like to grow up as an African-American person in Baltimore City. I really don't know. I have some idea of what it's like to grow up in poverty. I have some idea of what it's like to grow up in a totally uncertain place where you don't know whether you're going to live, where you don't know whether you're going to be hungry or have a roof over your head. But I all, I feel hesitant to share that because I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to understand something that I don't really... Without asking you to intuit somebody else's experience, what did growing up in that space at that time, in that context, what did it teach you about what it's like to grow up in a poor inner city environment that you think the broader culture gets wrong? Because this is not an unmythologized part of American life, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of media about it, a lot of cultural product about it, a lot of people who think that they've watched The Wire and now they know. Right. What do you think that people get wrong when they hear something like, I grew up in Compton in the early 90s, and then begin to fill it in with their stereotypes? Hmm. Part of it is I don't think people understand just what it's like to not have a safety net what it's like to grow up in a place where there is no other backup. You know, I um, look at some of my classmates and my, and my friends, and there was always this expectation that if something went wrong, if they made a mistake growing up, that there would be someone there to catch them. And that's not something that I ever had. I mean, my parents would have wanted to, don't get me wrong, just like every parent. I mean, there's no parent in the world who would say, well, I don't want my child to have this on-ramp back to a normal life. But there was no sense of normality. Our sense of normality was also totally warped by what we saw around us. We felt like we were living in a war zone without actually knowing that there is something else that's there. So I think that's part of it, the lack of safety net and not allowing our children to make mistakes that I don't think that people who are looking from the outside in are realizing. I think the other part, too, and I see this in Baltimore City so much that we tend to stereotype and we look at people who grow up in inner city environments as that's somebody who is the perpetrator of some crime. We look at what happened in April, last April in Baltimore during the unrest, and we say, well, there are youth who are out of control, who are doing this purge, who are committing acts of violence, who are burning cars. I mean, what's wrong with these people? Without realizing, and actually one of my staff said this to me that I thought was so profound. He said, it's hurt people who hurt people. We don't acknowledge and really understand this cycle of violence and trauma. Something happened actually in, in my role a few months back that totally challenged even my understanding of this violence and trauma narrative. I mean, I understand that, on, I think, on a pretty deep level. But so we run two clinics in the health department, one on the east side and one on the west side. Our east side clinic got robbed, not once or twice, but four times in the course of, of two and a half weeks. I mean, totally unprecedented and really shocking. Also, our clinics don't have much in them. I mean, we have people working in them. We provide STD, HIV care, reproductive health services, syphilis, tuberculosis. I mean, very basic health services to our most vulnerable community members. And so it was deeply disturbing to have our clinics broken into. Initially, they stole 
bus tokens for our patients who otherwise wouldn't be able to come to clinic. And then they began stealing staff phones and went into staff cubicles. I mean, it was highly disturbing to the staff. And I remember having this meeting with our staff who worked there who were saying, for the first time ever, right, these are staff who work in the communities, who are from the communities that they serve, who said, we need to protect the clinic. We need to build a wall. I mean, they literally said, we need to build a wall. We need to put up a fence. We need to stop people from coming in. We need to do a metal detector. I mean... What kind of robberies were these? Were these somebody coming in in daylight as an armed robbery? Or was it a burglary? They were all burglaries that occurred after hours. Mm-hmm. And so there were no injuries. Nobody was held up. Right. I mean, but it's still hugely traumatizing. Absolutely. I mean, I came in the next morning and people's cubicles, their personal supplies were lying around and people's photo frames were stolen. I mean, it felt traumatic. And it yeah. also felt like, what are we doing? Right, We're here to serve the community. And this is, I, I think that staff were feeling, where's the community support of us? So I, I get where they're coming from. After the fourth robbery, though, and we had the staff meeting, and people were saying, Let, let's build a wall. I was sympathetic to their point of view. And I was even thinking, what can we do to really increase security measures? And then someone said something to me about what happened during that first, fourth burglary. And what they said was, here's what they did that we may not be aware of. During that fourth robbery, they came in, they opened the staff fridges, the fridge where staff keep their lunches, and they ate their lunches. And these lunches are not, we're not talking fancy gourmet lunches. These are sandwiches that may be a week and a half old. They're frozen dinners that people brought, brought in pizzas left over from two weeks before. We have to think about what is going on in someone's mind, what is going on in that person's life that they're breaking in and eating these old lunches. And I think that speaks to the, it's hurt people who hurt people. I mean, what is going on in these people's lives that we should all be attuned to as well? So at what point along the way here do you begin to develop an interest in medicine as a profession? I was interested in medicine from a very early age, and I think this is one of these cliched things that when I applied for medical school, I thought about, how can I say this in a not-so-cliched way? Because otherwise, it's it's one of these, I wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember. But I remember when I was living in LA in particular and seeing all these things happen around me of people going without access to care. And I thought, if it's something I can do, that's a very tangible thing. I'm very hands-on, very action-oriented. I want to do something that I can get my hands on and feel like I'm making a difference immediately. And I thought being a doctor is my way of doing that. The complication, though, was that I didn't know any doctors at all. My parents probably did back in China. We didn't know anyone who was a doctor. I don't, I mean, I, maybe I went to the pediatrician at some point to get a vaccination or something. So maybe I knew a doctor. But I didn't know anyone, certainly no one in my in my parents' circles were physicians. I didn't meet anyone in the neighborhoods that I grew up in who was a doctor. Even after I went to college, I didn't know any doctors. Even as I was applying to medical school, I think I met people who had gotten into medical school, hmm. but I didn't really meet a doctor. I mean, I know it's kind of embarrassing to admit now, but I had this view of what it meant to be a doctor without actually having met a doctor. And where was that view coming from? Of what, how, what was forming this impression you had of what being a doctor would be like, why people want to be doctors without more firsthand experience? Were, were you a big fan of medical procedurals on television or you enjoyed what got you into it? 
I will admit that I watched ER. <laughs> I also read books about what what I thought at least being a doctor was about. But I think what appealed to me the most about being a doctor is that I didn't want to ever be the judge of people. I wanted to treat everyone the same, no matter what they looked like, whether they could pay, what circumstances they may be in. And I thought it's that idea of treating everyone with a basic humanity and dignity that really appealed to me about medicine. I didn't care mm. if they were convicted of some crime or if they were somehow someone that society has deemed unworthy in some way. I wanted to say, it's my job to take care of you no matter what and to help you and your family no matter what. I think I also did, though, have this idealized view of medicine that I later very quickly came to see and then almost left medical school. I had this view that doctors could do a lot more than they did. Hmm. I thought that doctors, and maybe this is why I went into medicine too, I, I've never talked about this because I've never really quite put this into words, so thank you for the question. But um, I thought that being a doctor meant that you could solve all the other problems that got this patient there in the first place. I didn't see the doctor as just being able to administer steroids and inhalers for a child with asthma. I also thought that that doctor would somehow be able to solve why that child had asthma in the first place. And I quickly saw in medical school that that wasn't the case, that I would be sending that same child back to their house where maybe they're homeless and they're living near an incinerator and maybe they live in a vacant building where there is mold everywhere and maybe everybody in their house smokes. I mean, that was very humbling and disillusioning for, for me to find that out, that I couldn't resolve those issues. What was the moment when you thought about leaving medical school? My first year of medical school. I entered medical school. I, I loved my classmates. I will say for anybody who's listening who's from St. Louis, I loved my, my experience at, at WashU. I loved my professors, the students. It was the first time that I felt like I was really engaging in these I'm headed to WashU to do a speech next week. Really? Yeah. You should say hello. I, I love St. Louis. St. Louis also is very similar to, to Baltimore. So in a way, I feel like I'm home. Oh, interesting, yeah. There's an east and west side. Everybody asks <laughs> about what school did you go to? And they don't mean what college. They mean what high school did you go to? Because uh -huh. it says a lot about you and who you know and everybody. So it's very similar. But um, so... I loved being a medical student. So that wasn't it. It was that I realized that what I wanted to address was not going to happen through being a doctor. And I thought, oh my goodness, I need to think about, I need to think about something else. I mean, I need to either figure out how to shape this career in in medicine or leave medicine. And thankfully I found a group of peers who actually felt the same way as I did through AMSA, through through the American Medical Student Association. And it was the, the model for AMSA. I don't know what their motto is now, but the motto at the time was, it takes more than medical school to become a doctor. And the idea is that you can't address these other social factors, right? You can't address housing and poverty and education through just, quote unquote, just being a doctor, that there's a lot more that's involved too. And there's a lot more that medicine can't do. These social determinants also determine how healthy someone is. And actually, even though 97% of healthcare costs are spent on what happens in the hospital, less than 10% of what determines how long someone lives depends on what happens in the hospital, which is hard for doctors to understand because we think of everything as, well, this is what I'm training to do. I'm training to diagnose and give treatments. But what if that treatment also involves better food, better housing, other, other opportunities? And I think that's 
that's when I decided that I can actually come back to medicine. But, um, but it was a very long journey. Support for The Gray Area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So the research around social determinants of health and the very tiny proportion of our ultimate health outcomes driven by what happens in a doctor's office or in a hospital, it feels to me as, as someone who's done a lot of reporting on this, that this is one of these things that we know about the world that we don't know how to integrate into our political conversation, into our medical conversation, our scientific conversation. There is, I think, a, a broad consensus that if we wanted to make people healthier, we would not just pump more money into the healthcare delivery system or even the health insurance system, which is primarily what we talk about when we talk about healthcare in Washington. And yet the rest of it is so complicated and multifaceted that it seems to me people and, and, and people in politics particularly look at it and back off. They don't really know how to put that understanding into action. And so when you look at something like that, when you when you try to pull in as a foundation level understanding that if you're going to cure somebody's asthma, you need to make sure they're living in a home that isn't abutting an incinerator plant. How do you begin to do that? Because now you're getting into places where not only do you not have authority, but oftentimes people don't want you to butt into their lives in that way. Oftentimes parents don't want that. Oftentimes you, it's very hard for you even to know what's going on. How do you begin to make that part of your practice? I think there are two parts of, of what you're asking. One is the dialogue, the political dialogue, the public dialogue. The other is the what happens on the individual level, which I will challenge you on and say that I think that parents and patients do want you to, to, to intervene on that level. So let me address them mm -hmm. separately. The political level, 
I think that that is my greatest challenge. I see my, my role, actually, as the health commissioner as being the chief marketer for public health. There is the saying about public health that it saved your life today. You just don't know it. I mean, public health is what we do when we do restaurant inspections to prevent you from getting foodborne illness. It's the disease investigations to stop you from getting legionnaires, right? It's all these, it's the preventive measures to prevent people from getting obesity and therefore getting heart, heart attacks later. The challenge, though, is it's different from working in the hospital setting, it would be so much easier to market what happens at a hospital because there is the patient whose life was saved as a result of a catheterization, and then they had a open heart surgery, and now their life is saved, right? There is a face of that person, mm -hmm. but there is no face of someone who is now healthy, and nothing happened to them because of the interventions that were done early in their childhood, right? There is no face of a child who could have gotten lead poisoning but mm -hmm. didn't get lead poisoning. Congratulations. You do not have rotavirus. Yeah, exactly. Or when we look at gunshot wounds, I got trained in emergency medicine. I can certainly talk about the trauma victims that I've seen whose lives are now totally changed because of acute interventions that were done. Their life is saved. And here they are talking about the great advances of modern medicine. There is that person who exists. But is there a person who exists because of a conflict that was mediated and therefore that gunshot wound did not take place? Or even before that, who got a job and was able to move their family out of a neighborhood and therefore their children did not become the victims of drive-by shooting? I mean, that's the message that that's what I work on every single day to talk about why it is that we need to invest in public health and why there is no, there is no face of public health, but that... We can't just talk about the cost of investing in a program. We have to talk about the cost of doing nothing. I mean, we see this happening with Zika now, as ever, right, that Congress has not taken action on funding for, for Zika. It's not just about the cost of funding $1.9 billion or, or, or whatever it is for Zika prevention. We should also be talking about every child born with microcephaly could cost society up to $10 million. So where is that, the cost of doing nothing in this, in this conversation? So I think that that's the first piece. We also have to, also in that first piece of the health versus healthcare debate, think about whether it is that healthcare and all the money we're investing into healthcare is actually taken away from health. Because if we're investing in acute medical interventions, where is our spending on housing? Where's our spending on other social services that are so important? Well, let me ask you something about this, because I have never met anyone in politics who disagrees with anything you just said. It is a favorite riff of virtually every politician I've ever spoken to who does serious work on healthcare. Everybody seems to know this. And yet we just kind of trundle on in the same way. One of my theories for it has been that this is a path dependence of bureaucratic structure, that the core committees in Congress that manage the health care programs or finance in the Senate and energy and commerce in, in the House. So they are money committees. They think about money. They think about insurance. They think about how they're funding things, that the bureaucracies are trying so hard to manage things like Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare and VA health and others, that there just isn't that much leftover room. And yet it is nevertheless strange that Everybody, everybody agrees with what you just said. So why, why is it so hard, right? Why, if everybody will make that point, yes, public health is saving your life, you need to know it, and that intervention is more cost effective. And yes, the money saved from someone who did not get microencephaly is so much greater 
than the amount of money it takes to, to keep them from getting it, that it's an obvious way we should be thinking about the budget. Why do you think it is so hard to move the system in that direction? I'm not sure I agree that politicians necessarily speak this way. So I will contend that they do talk about prevention. They do understand why health in general is important. But when it comes down to it, the special interests are talking about, or in special interests, I don't mean in a pejorative way, but rather that there are people who are advocating on behalf of hospitals. There are people advocating on behalf of insurance companies. They are dominating the conversation. There are very few people advocating on behalf of prevention for mm-hmm. getting rid of standing water so that we can stop Zika from occurring. Big standing water. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there are a few people talking about the importance of abatement for lead so that we can prevent lead paint poisoning from happening. There's more now because of Flint, but the conversations around health still always end up going back to health care. If we look at right. even the Democratic Party platform and certainly the Republican Party platform, you will see that every if you look at if you count the number of mentions to health care, that's basically the entire health policy centers around health care and what happens in the hospital and not centered around all these other things that are that are involved in what's important in health because there is no lobby around public health. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is a thing the system can't escape, mm-hmm. that because of how it built itself, there are now so many parts of it and so much logic built into it to keep focusing on the same thing. I think a lot of people recognize it'd be better to focus elsewhere, but I don't think folks know how to make that turn or even are sure they can make that turn, right? It's this sort of logic of big organizations. I mean, this must be something, I don't mean to, to jump around a chronology too much, but that you must face in, in your job. The Baltimore Health Department has 1,300 employees. Is that the number I remember? Um, just over 1,000 Just employees. over 1,000. Mm-hmm. If you want to move priorities in that, that can't be trivial, I I mean, I, I feel like I'm being very antagonistic today. I really don't. Please. <laughs> Not normally. Knock me back. Um, but um, in the health department, we have a fair degree of flexibility in a way that my counterparts in other parts of the country probably do not have. And certainly my fellow city agency heads in Baltimore City don't have. And it's in part because of our structure. So I don't take personal credit for it. This is because of my, my predecessors who have been able to do this. But we have a, our budget of about $130 million. We are over 80% grant funded. So less than 20% of our funding comes from city general funds, which is both good and bad. The bad is that we always face cuts to our core programs. I mean, our city, just like many other cities, has a declining tax base. We're under heavy fiscal constraints. So it's frustrating when we see that there are successful programs that are saving lives, that are cost-effective, and we face the challenge of convincing our legislators to continue to fund our programs that we know are effective. So that's the frustrating part. The good part, though, is that because we're so heavily grant-dependent, and this is state and federal and private grants, that as long as we are able to get funding for something, as long as we're able to justify the importance, we can change the policy, we can raise funds, and we can immediately get that to happen. So I'll give you an example that when I first came to the city, I realized that there was something very basic that wasn't happening, which almost sounds ridiculous if I say it, but our kids who needed glasses were not getting them. 
Less than 20% of kids who were screening positive as needing further eye exams or glasses were actually getting glasses. Not only that, but kids were only getting screened in pre-K, first grade, and eighth grade. I wear contacts. I'm, you wear glasses. I know a lot of people have vision I'm extremely issues. blind. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. I'm glad that I have my contacts in now. But there are a lot of us who got diagnosed with vision mm. issues between first and eighth grade. Yeah. And a lot of kids don't even know that they have vision issues because maybe they can't see the board. They think it's normal that you can't see the board, and therefore they end up getting further back in school mm -hmm. or held back in school. They may even be labeled as being disruptive or trouble kids when actually they need glasses, and then they never catch up. I mean, that is really low-hanging fruit, and yet it's something that wasn't being addressed. And so we raised $2.1 million in a course of a few weeks, got together. How do you do that? When you say you raised $2 million in a, in a few weeks, what did you do? We partner with groups that are that are um, that are implementation. I mean, this did take over the course of a year or so to make sure that we have the partners in place so that we know that we can deliver on this. And then we raised money from private donors, from foundations in, in in the city. This is something we routinely do, and as long as we're able to do it, we can immediately get our services in place. So we already staff every school with nurses and nurse aides, which is something that people do argue with me about in philosophy. They'll say, well, why under, why is there now Obamacare? Why do you still need to provide direct clinical services in Baltimore City? My answer is that we don't live in Bethesda, right? We don't live in a place where every child has a pediatrician. That would be ideal if they do. But our option is either to have kids never attend school because they don't have immunizations, or it's to provide immunizations directly in our school. So we have the infrastructure. We increase the infrastructure so that we are now able to deliver the services that are most needed, and we raise funds and we're able to do it. I mean, I never thought that I would be in local government. I never thought that I would be in government at all. But I took this job because of that, of, I think, a very unique place that we have to get policy changed, and immediately see that impact on people because we can raise funding to do it. So to your initial question of are we able to restructure our priorities, actually we are because our structure is so different that we are able to change after the unrest. I saw that this was the opportunity for us to really address mental health and trauma in a very different way, that there has traditionally been so much stigma around mental health, that mental health has been at the wayside in a way that physical health just has not, that people don't think about them in the same breath. And now suddenly there's a tension and understanding that we can address trauma, that the unrest, even though the trauma isn't just from those days of the unrest, it unearthed and allowed for this conversation around trauma to occur. And I thought we had this very unique window to be able to address it. So we started a 24-7 trauma and mental health access line and then convened our community to think about what it is, how can we think about trauma differently? And our community actually said, part of thinking about it differently is you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I heard that loud and clear, and it was quite a humbling experience to hear from the community that you don't, we don't need you to tell us what our experiences of trauma is like. We don't, we need you to open the door and allow us to have this conversation and get us the funding to do it, but we know how to address it. You don't. And so we applied for a grant from SAMHSA, and I wasn't sure that we would get this grant because the way that we applied for it specifically said, we can't tell you how this money exactly is going to be used. What we can tell you is that we'll have a community advisory board. This board will be 
elected from our community. They will select themselves and to say they are the ones who are going to be determining what will be useful in these neighborhoods in West Baltimore to address trauma. Most of those funds are not allocated. We don't want to, you know, we'll have, we'll be accountable for where these funds go, but we don't want to tell the community how these funds are going to be used. That's completely the opposite of what they want and completely the opposite of everything that we've been hearing. Well, we just heard that we got this $3 million grant along with another $2.3 million grant from the Department of Education to address trauma and mental health, So, which is phenomenal. I'm really happy about it, but I think it's an example of how once we identify a problem, we are able to restructure our, our priorities because we recognize that that is our very unique window to do it and because it's really what our community has said. So to, so to pull backwards a bit, how did you end up in this position? You were an ER doctor. You'd written a book on communicating better with your doctor. You had a campaign to, to get doctors to disclose their conflicts of interest and, and other kinds of pertinent information that was, I think, fairly radical for the profession. And you're 32. Do I have that right? I'm 33, so I'm older than you. But you were 32 <laughs> when you got the job, yeah? I was, um, I was 32. To 31, I think I was 31. 31. So how did you come to the attention of the mayor of Baltimore? How did the process of being interviewed for this go? Tell me a bit about, tell me a bit about that transition. <laughs> sure. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm the forced gump of, of public health. I mean, I don't have a public health degree. I've been doing what I think is public health work for a long time without without saying that it's public health, because actually I think that public health has a bad rep. I think that public health is sidelined because of the money, special interests, et cetera, that those lobbies are all in health care. And so I've never thought of myself as being in public health. I, I mean, I'm a physician. I deliver health care services. I mean, I always thought of myself as a practitioner in health care. My work in patient advocacy also was what I really held to be so important. I mean, when I was early in my medical school training, in addition to almost dropping out and then coming back, I also had the experience of my mother getting diagnosed with, with metastatic cancer and being her caregiver while I was going through my medical school and then residency training and just seeing how much our system is not set up to help patients and families and also how disillusioned doctors and nurses and our providers are at the same time, that there is this disconnect that exists. And so I saw myself in that role as the, I'm going to help my patients on the individual level, because that's what I've always wanted to do, right? That's what I wanted to do when I was a child. It's that visceral sense of, I get to help people where they are at the time that, 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 that they need help. That's what drew me to medicine. And I loved that part of my job. I, though, was also getting frustrated that there were all these patients who would keep on coming back to me in the ER, who I knew that I was not delivering the ideal medical care that they needed. In fact, I knew that I was doing the wrong thing. I remember seeing this one patient who would come in over and over again requesting help for her addiction. She was a competitive swimmer. She'd gotten addicted to opioid pain medications because of back problems. She switched to heroin. And she was just in this downward spiral that I've seen for so many of my patients. I mean, she, her family didn't want to keep on housing her anymore. She lost her job. She dropped out of school. She lost her fiance. I mean, she just was in this downward spiral. She always came in requesting the same thing, which is that she wanted treatment for her addiction. And I would tell her every time, 
I'm sorry, but I can't. This is not an emergent issue. This is not something I can do in the ER. I can help you see a social worker, but they might be able to find you an appointment in a few weeks. It got to the point that she would lie to me. She knew what to say. She knew that if she said that she was suicidal, that at least I would call the psychiatrist and maybe that would get her an extra six hours in the ER while the psychiatrist would evaluate her. And I thought, what is this situation that my, my patient would lie to me? And I know that she's lying to me just so that she could get what I knew that she needed and what she knew that she needed and what her family knew that she needed. What kind of situation is that? And this patient, eventually, I saw her for one last time when she asked for help and then came back to me on that same shift after having overdosed and this time died. And I think about her frequently because I think about the literally dozens of times that I saw her, that all of us in the ER saw her. We probably saw her hundreds of times over the course of her relatively short life. She, was, she would have been my age now. And I think about what we should have done with so many opportunities to intervene. But why didn't we take those opportunities then? And what more could be done? Because I then, after she died, I went on to tell other patients no. So what am I doing? What is my responsibility to my patients? That, and why am I still in the system if I can't do more? And so I had that in the back of my mind. And I began teaching, doing research on patient-centered care, thinking about how we can re how we can change the system from the hospital and health system side. I also began teaching health policy, which I loved. And I enjoyed teaching students. And there's so many idealistic students and residents who went into medicine for the right reasons. But then over time, they felt the same disillusionment that I had that I then felt like I could help to teach about social determinants and other things. But then I thought, why am I teaching about this when this is the right time in my life to do something? So I had that at the backdrop. And then a former colleague of mine mentioned that this job was open. There was a national search. I didn't know much about Baltimore. I had a sense that it might be similar to St. Louis, LA, that some of the challenges are what I understood, I applied for the job through this national search. I didn't know people. How does a national search work? Is it on monster.com? I mean, how, how does the city <laughs> go about finding a, a senior level manager like that? That's a good question. I'm sure every city and executive does it differently. My mayor, Mayor Rawlings Blake, has always looked for the best person for that job. Several of my fellow agency heads also came through a search process. So mm. she enlisted a firm for those other uh, other jobs as well. This is the same firm that that they handled my, my search. I think it was a fairly equitable process. I put my name in. I filled in an application. I came in for an interview. I was then told to that I was in the final round and then came to meet the mayor. I mean, all of that, as you can imagine, took Many months, I think, between the time that I was initially approached to apply and the time that I was selected was five or six months. And so I had a lot of time in that period to do a lot of research, to meet a lot of people. And I was very clear when I entered my job and during this time as well that I come from a place of not knowing anything. I did not want to come in and say that I know what Baltimore needs. I mean, I think that would be really the wrong approach, especially for a city whose residents has heard so many promises that are not kept. I know I'm not from Baltimore. I know that I don't understand the issues the way that somebody who's from, from the city might. I also did think, though, that I had a different skill set to offer, things that I can offer the city as, a, as an activist. And I also made that very clear when I interviewed with, with the mayor and subsequently that I've always seen myself on the outside. And my first reaction is always to say, let's hold a rally. Let's get people together. Let's organize, right? Because that's what I know. 
And now I'm thinking, oh, you know, my staff will always tell me this. My, my chief of staff who used to work on the Hill and um, at OMB, she would always, her job, she sees as holding me back. Her first reaction is always, don't think about this before you do it, <laughs> because often who we're rallying against is ourselves. So she says, okay, now tone it back <laughs> one step, but just think about what that means if, we're our, if, if we are to hold this rally. Who are we holding the rally against? But, can, um, can I share an observation? Sure. There is nothing that insiders like hearing more than that people see themselves as outsiders. It's funny because you, you just said that. I've heard so many stories like that of people applying for high up government jobs. I, had, I did an interview on this podcast. I don't remember if it came out of this interview, but I think it did, with the World Bank president, Jim Young Kim. Oh, I haven't listened to that one yet. I oh, have listened to a lot of your other podcasts, I said. But... <laughs> uh, that, that one, we, that one uh, unlike the Booker ones, we'll destroy those, but Kim was good. No. I, um, I, can I just say that I'm secretly, although not so secretly in love with, 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 with Corey Booker. My husband know, knows this very well. Well, too, that I cite him frequently. Well, Senator, you've you've, you've heard it here. <laughs> but so Jim Young Kim was a he was an anti World Bank activist, and when the Obama administration was looking for someone to be in the World Bank job, and they approached him, he said, "Do you guys know I've been organizing against the World Bank for years? I, I edited a book of critiques of the World Bank." They said, "Yeah, that's fine, that's great." <laughs> and I think that there is. We have this kind of insider-outsider dichotomy when we talk about politics and, and, and bureaucracies. But oftentimes, the people who end up the insiders, they got into it because they saw something wrong with the system. The mayor of Baltimore probably did not think Baltimore was going great right before she got elected. So they're always looking for people who they feel share their revolutionary fervor, even if they're no longer seen to to hold it. That's That is very interesting. And... It is that calling, right? Those of us who are passionate about things, we're passionate about making a difference. And there are just different ways of, of making that difference. I just never thought that I'd be making a difference on the inside, mainly because I thought that I would have to hold back so much. And I'm very fortunate to have worked for uh, and to be working for a mayor who has allowed me to speak my mind, understanding that it's based on evidence and science. I'm not just saying random stuff. I'm always saying what is factually and scientifically accurate and based on what it is that, are, that we're hearing from, from, uh, from, from our community. I mean, that's the side about the personal, what it is that people want from their health. I mean, our community understands very well that health is not just about the health care that they get in a hospital. They understand that if their doctor is saying to, to them to eat healthier foods, but actually one in three African-Americans live in a food desert, that how are you going to be able to do that? Right? How, how are you going to be able to choose to eat healthy foods, that that choice is predicated on a level of privilege that not all of us have, or that some of our schools don't even have recess and kids don't feel safe playing outside in neighborhoods where there are shootings every day. And so how are we supposed to tell a child or a parent, well, go make sure that your child has exercise every day? So to your question, though, about insider, outsider, there's something that I find interesting. When I speak to young people, to students, and I hear others, especially politicians, I think, speak to students about getting involved, often they'll say, vote, which I agree with, or they'll say, run for office. and that is one way to get involved, but there are so many other ways to get involved too. And I think that that's mm -hmm. the 
that's the lesson that I hope that students will take away, that it's not just, I mean, not everybody needs to run for office to make a difference. There are so many ways for us to make a difference with our community organizations, with our neighborhood groups. There are so many levels for us to be involved with in government. I mean, public service, working in working the Baltimore City Health Department and many others. There are such amazing ways to get involved as well. I mean, I just never thought that I would have a job where so much could be done. I mean, we got the, we heard that there were more people in our city dying from overdose than dying from homicide. And we saw what was standing in the way, which is that people could not get access to the antidote medication Narcan or naloxone. So we got legislation passed but so that, you know. Before we go deep in that, I actually want to, because I want to talk about the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I want to set the scene because I, I think a lot of people, this is not quite like previous drug epidemics. And so I'd love for you, because I, I know you work on this intensely, I'd love for you to set up, how should somebody think about when they hear the word opioid crisis, what is the opioid crisis in America right now? Because to just give a couple stats before I turn it over to you, and I'll just keep rambling here as it is uh, is my want. So we're now seeing more drug overdose deaths than at any other point in American history. We are seeing more drug overdose deaths than we saw HIV AIDS deaths during the height of the plague. Like this is really, really, really bad. And I think it's only beginning to penetrate into people's consciousness that we have something of of an emergency here. But it's the first of these is dealing with a lot of drugs that aren't actually illegal. And I'd love for you to talk at that at that point, because these drugs are often being prescribed by the medical system. I mean, they can lead to illegal drugs, but a lot of this is oxycontin, hydrocodone, et cetera, fentanyl. So how should somebody think about this? What, what should they hear when they hear opioid crisis? So that's a very good frame because it allows me to go in so many directions with it. Um, it's a very good frame because it is completely <laughs> nonspecific and has 26 moving parts to it. Well, heroin has been a problem for a long time. It's been a problem in mainly in inner city communities for for a long time, which is actually something that needs to be brought up because whenever I talk about the opioid crisis in Baltimore City and in other major urban cities, I hear people say, well, why is it that it's suddenly an epidemic when there have been people in our communities dying from it for so many years? And I think it's important to start with that acknowledgement that it is true that people have been dying of the opioid crisis, specifically heroin, for decades. And that it's now, I mean, yes, it is true that the numbers have gotten much worse. The number of people dying from opioid overdoses has quadrupled in the last 10, 15 years. So that is a big change. It is also true that that demographic has changed, that it's not just people in inner cities poor black Mm -hmm. people in inner cities who are dying. We're also seeing white people in suburbs and rural areas who are dying. And that is one reason. I think it is important to acknowledge that that is one reason why it's suddenly a national crisis, because it has been said that if you are poor and you have an addiction, that you have a moral failing, Mm -hmm. as opposed to somehow it's a disease. If you're white and you're wealthy, you can check yourself into a clinic. So I think that needs to be there. I think that's really important that we are we are treating this one not as a moral panic, but as a public health problem. I think it is very hard to argue the point that it's because it has become a problem of suburban and rural whites. 
I'm glad that we're talking about addiction as a disease and as a public health crisis. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's first of all, it's true. It's scientifically true that addiction is a disease. It's also true that the arrest your way out of it is not going to work, that we have to treat people with, with a disease. I mean, we would never say, well, too bad you have diabetes. Let's put you in jail and see if you'll get better. I mean, that just doesn't exist in our understanding of any other illness. So, And we still have a really long way to go because only 11% of patients nationwide who have the addiction or have the disease of addiction are able to get the help that they need, which is not a statistic true for any other disease. We would never find it acceptable to say only 11% of patients with cancer can get chemotherapy or who need dialysis are able to get it. Right? We would never say that. So we're still a long way off, but we are at least acknowledging that it's a disease because the face of addiction has changed. And now people are saying things like addiction does not discriminate. I'm glad that people are saying that. I'm glad that we're seeing that there are many different types of people who could die from overdose. I mean, in the ER, I've treated three-year-olds who taken their grandparents' medications by accident who are dying. I've seen 80-year-olds who have addictions that nobody knew. I've seen 30-year-olds who were post-surgery and by accident took too many medications. I mean, there's the gamut. And so it is a true statement that I'm glad that we're focusing on while acknowledging the racial injustices that really are there too. But to your point, Ezra, the other part about the opioid crisis that is different is that we have this man-made epidemic. And I will admit, too, that I am part of the problem. I am part of the reason why this man-made epidemic exists. So it's this is something that, again, back to our confessional, right, that, I, that has taken me years to really be able to understand this. But I look back at my medical practice. I look back at what I did as a resident and, to some extent, as an attending as well. I look back and I think about all the patients who really did not need opioids that I prescribed opioids to. Medical training works by what we learn from our attendings, from our supervisors. We learn medical practice. A lot of it is science, sure, but a lot of it is the art of medicine, right? I mean, nobody teaches you exactly how many of certain medications are usually prescribing to this exact patient who comes in with this very specific type of pain. But it was routine that I would watch my attendings, and therefore I did this too, that if somebody came in with tooth pain and they couldn't see their dentist for a few days, that I would give them opioids to tie them over. Somebody comes in with back pain, and if they don't have a life-threatening injury, but they needed pain medications, I would routinely give that person opioids, and probably more than they needed, because I thought it was inconveniencing Mm -hmm. them to have to come into the ER again to come in and get more prescriptions post-surgery. Patients would routinely get dozens of opioids. They would get a a prescription for a hundred of oxycodone, a hundred of of hydrocodone. I mean, that's something that routinely happened because of, of medical practice. The other part that we have to acknowledge is that drug companies are absolutely the cause of this too, that drug companies championed making pain a vital sign. They withheld information over years about how dangerous opioids are. They certainly did not provide education on the addictive property of opioids as well as the likelihood of overuse and misuse. And so it's doctors, it's drug companies, and patients too. That American culture does have this pill for every pain that got us to where we are. I mean, it used to be that if you fall down, you bruise your knee. You know that it's going to be sore. That's fine. Or you sprain your ankle. You know that it's going to be sore. You put some ice on it. You rest it. Now, people will come into the doctor and expect that their pain is taken away when actually being pain-free should not be our goal. 
we should acknowledge that every treatment does have side effects, every treatment does have risks, and that being pain-free isn't the goal. It's to get better and to not have long-term damage. So that's a key point that I just want to stop on for a minute, because it is my perception as somebody who, who covered medicine when I was as a journalist, that, you know, go back a decade. And one of the things you were seeing in the medical community was a belief that we had undertreated pain for a long time. I mean, you, I would go into a doctor's office to get treated myself and I would, I would see these signs on the wall that were about the zero to 10 scale for pain and pain is a vital sign. And, you know, making sure that, that this was a place that took your pain seriously. And so there was a, a belief and a moment in medicine possibly because we were also getting more effective painkillers uh, in, in, into people's hands, that we had undertreated people suffering for too long. Mm -hmm. And that now as, as a profession, pain was going to be taken as seriously as disease or as seriously as injury it would not be seen as some kind of thing that the patient had to bear while we, we I shouldn't say we, well, doctors simply fix the underlying problem. And that cultural understanding it seems to me contributed quite mightily to this. And now what you're the reason I want to stop what you're saying is that I've heard what you're saying from others. And one of my colleagues is doing a piece looking, I think, at some of these issues too. And it seems to me now there's a backlash against this, this idea that pain should maybe not be a vital sign, that maybe it is not the medical system's job to take away all pain. That's a pretty big cultural shift and will require, it seems to me, a lot of work and re-education, not just of doctors, but of patients? There are two questions that I would want for people to think about. The first is, at what cost are we taking away the pain? Pain can be taken away. We have the advances to do so. We can keep someone under heavy anesthetics throughout their lifetime if we want to. But at what cost are we doing that? What is the risk of overdose that we're willing to accept? What is the risk of addiction that we're, that we're willing to accept? Second question that I would want to ask is, what pain are we treating? There are people who take opioids not just because of physical pain that they're experiencing, there's also this deep emotional pain that many people are going through that may even be masquerading as physical pain. I have kids coming to the ER, coming to our health suites to be treated in, in, in the city who may have abdominal pain. But maybe what they have isn't appendicitis. Maybe what they have is untreated mental illness. Maybe what they have is deep trauma. Maybe what they have is seeing that everybody else in their family is addicted to drugs. And why are they not getting up in the morning? And why does that child have to get up and take care of their four-year-old or five-year-old siblings? I mean, there is this other element of pain that we're not really understanding. And so our pendulum has swung totally in the wrong direction. I mean, I don't argue at all that there are patients who really have chronic pain or have acute pain and need to be treated. I mean, I don't want us to not treat pain and let people suffer. But we're also at a point where we are prescribing enough opioids every year for every adult American to have their own bottle of opioids. That's insane. <laughs> for every person, it's not just for every household, for every person. Are Americans really in so much pain that we are 5% of the world's population, but over 80% of the world's opioid prescriptions? So... That is changing. The FDA has just taken action on this. The CDC has put out guidelines. I've been working closely with the Surgeon General, with our doctors in Baltimore City to change their prescribing practices. I do think that that understanding has changed. 
but we really need for people, for patients, all of us to be involved in asking the questions too. Every time you go to the doctor, you should be asking, why am I getting this medication? What are the alternatives? What are the side effects? What if I don't take them? I mean, mm-hmm. not, not doing something should be part of the, the, the lexicon as well. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So we have developed this crisis and... uh... You have people who get addicted to OxyContin and move to heroin. You have people who just stay on OxyContin or fentanyl. And so there's a question of how we got here. And then there's the question of the cultural friction to what we should do about it. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, they just began, I believe it's an experiment, not a nationwide policy, but where they are in some cases prescribing heroin to very, very addicted people under the theory that it would be better if they took a regulated amount in a regulated overseen setting than, you know, we're trying to get it off the street. Here, there's the less, I think, radical, but still quite controversial questions of what kinds of medications are we willing to prescribe as a counter mm-hmm. to opiate addiction? How do you think about that debate? There are two aspects of it. The one is I think pretty clear to most people, which is that we should get naloxone or Narcan, which is the antidote medication available to everyone who could die. Because if we don't save a life today, there's no chance that that person could get any type of hope for for tomorrow. So tell me the argument against it. Why is that not everybody's view? Right. It's a good point. I do think that this should be everyone's view. But um, there are some who will say, let me actually back up and just say that naloxone I have given in the ER hundreds of times. It is a medication that is totally safe. If somebody is not on opioids, it has no side effects for that person. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is on opioids, it does make them feel uncomfortable because it sends them immediately into withdrawal. And then they feel nauseous, they throw up, they get shaky, they don't feel well. But there are other options that they stop breathing and they die within minutes. So this medication will save someone's life within seconds. And in Baltimore City, we have made this available to everyone. Last year, we've saved over 400 people. It's just in the last year alone with getting Narcan or Naloxone into as many hands as we can. So it is a very effective medication. There are some, though, who will say, well, isn't making Narcan available, isn't that going to just encourage people to use drugs? Because now they think that there's no consequence to overdosing, and so they're they're just going to be using it. My argument is that that is not evidence-based at all. We would never, first of all, say that to someone who has a peanut allergy. We would never say, well, I'm not going to give you an EpiPen because it's just going to encourage you to eat peanuts. We wouldn't say that. So why would we say that about addiction? The second thing, too, is that an individual who has an addiction, the last thing that they want is to go through withdrawal. 
Nobody is going to use heroin or oxycodone or whatever in order to get naloxone to send them into withdrawal, which is an extremely unpleasant feeling. So that is that whole misconception is based on stigma and not based on reality and not based on science. But I, I still think that the majority of people would agree that naloxone is important. And you'll hear people from all sides of the political spectrum, at least talk about mm-hmm. getting naloxone to law enforcement, naloxone to friends and family, et cetera, which is great. The part that there is more disagreement over is around treatment. Now, believe me, as a public health person, I strongly believe in prevention. I believe that we should focus on prevention. But there are still millions of people who have an addiction, who and, need treatment. And just to make something clear, so naloxone, you're talking, I, I just want to distinguish, yes. naloxone is an acute case That's right. of overdose. That's right. Treatment is dealing with somebody's ongoing addiction problem. Just I wanted to separate those two out. Thank you for clarifying. The You can think of it as if somebody has diabetes, if somebody has very low blood sugar and they otherwise would die, that person needs glucose at that time where they have very high blood sugar, they need insulin at that time where also they'll die. But their diabetes isn't cured because you gave them that one-time treatment. They still need long-term treatment for for their diabetes. The same thing with addiction as well, that if somebody has an opioid addiction, they use too many opioids at one time, you have to save their life right now or else they're dead. But once you save their life, they still need to get into long-term treatment. That is what we know based on science. That is what what every major medical organization has endorsed, that we know what works for treating addiction. That treatment exists, recovery is possible, but it requires a combination of medications combined with psychosocial treatment combined with other services like housing. We know which medications work. The problem is that there is still this resistance to treating addiction as a disease. People still want to see it as a choice. They still don't accept that long-term treatment is necessary, that relapses occur. And yet we accept that for other diseases. And you don't tell somebody, why are you back in the hospital for your congestive heart failure? You should have eaten better. I mean, people might think that, but we would still, there's no question that we would treat this person with heart failure just because they happen to relapse and eaten something bad. But we don't see that for, for addiction in, in the same way. And so to go through it, what are the options there? Because there is, and and I think one piece of this that you didn't mention or, or maybe don't, don't see as, uh, as big a dimension of it, but there is a fight in how you treat addiction in America. There is a traditional view that I think is well exemplified by AA, which is that, you know, you have to both admit the problem, but also you have to abstain, right? It's an abstinence view. And then there's a set of views that this is a medical condition that you can manage with medication. My understanding of this is that right here in between those, there's a lot of battle because a lot of folks see managing mm-hmm. addiction with medication as another as a way of indulging addiction to some degree. It's hard for me to acknowledge that argument because it is not based on science at all. I understand that we have to talk about it because that is the misconception that's there. In the same way that we still have to address the misconceptions around vaccinations, even Mm -hmm. though there's no science at all about linkages that really shouldn't even be talked about because they're just not, they're not real. But there are people who believe that 
someone should have the moral, quote unquote, moral character or something to be able to quit because they under, they may have met someone who was able to quit and abstain and that and that's what works for them. The difficulty with addiction is I don't want to take away from those people's experiences. If somebody really was able to quit, quote unquote, cold turkey or go to a rapid detox program and now they're abstaining, I don't take away from their experience. I'm glad that they were able to get, get the help that worked for them. The issue, though, is that I, as a public health official and as a doctor, have to do what is evidence-based. I have to talk about what is based on science and not just based on a person or a few people's anecdote. We know based on science that addiction is a chronic brain disease, just like high blood pressure. Nobody would say to somebody with high blood pressure, why hasn't diet or exercise worked for you? Why do you need that one medication for a lifetime? What's wrong with you that you can't just take this medication for 30 days and be done? Why can't you just go to a group and find help in this group? I mean, we would never say that to somebody with any other medical illness. And our challenge in public health has to be changing that conversation so that we are seeing addiction in the same way that we're seeing high blood pressure, diabetes, or, or, or heart disease. We have to make treatment available at the time that people need it. We have to talk about how treatment does work. And we have to also change that misconception that, that you stated very, very well. I think that somehow it's seen as a failure if we have to keep someone on long-term medications, because I've heard the, this misconception of, well, you're trading one addiction for another. And yet, we wouldn't say to somebody, well, why are you still on insulin? You're mm -hmm. just trading one, one addiction for another. I mean, it would be ludicrous to say that to to, uh, to someone with, with diabetes. And yet we do that for addiction all the time. So that's the next frontier that we have to work on. And we need a lot more people to talk about their experiences of treatment. Let me, um, ask, let me ask you about a different uh, priority of yours in, in Baltimore, which is health disparities in the city. So there was a lot of focus on this after Freddie Gray. And at Box, Sarah Clip did a great piece where she showed that uh, there were counties in Baltimore where you had infant mortality that equaled out of the West Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a tremendous amount of variation. And, and when you took your job, you wrote an op-ed about, I, I apologize when I get the headline wrong, but the geography shouldn't be destiny That's right. when it comes to your health. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear a bit about why the disparities in Baltimore are so great and what you see as the mechanisms by which they can be addressed. Because if these were easy problems, they would be solved. Mm -hmm. But something has gone quite wrong when these sorts of comparisons, when you can see um, areas of Baltimore with adult mortality that looks like extremely, extremely poor and often war-ravaged countries and infant mortality that looks like some of the most conflict-ridden places on earth. I think that what you just said about disparities is our strongest argument for why we can't just expect healthcare to resolve issues on its own. I think of this as the central paradox in, in Baltimore, that we have some amazing medical institutions. We have some of the best in the world. People come from all over the world to go to University of Maryland and Hopkins. And yet, if healthcare really determined how long people live, we should have the longest life expectancy. We should also have no disparities because while there are issues of access, and it's true that certain people in Baltimore have better access than others to these healthcare institutions, that healthcare is not determining how long people live, right? You mentioned the geography should not be destiny part. I look at neighborhoods in Baltimore. You have in North Baltimore, Roland Park has a life expectancy average of 85 years. You go a few miles 
Southwest, you go to Sandtown, Winchester, where Freddie Gray grew up, and you have life expectancy of 65 years. I mean, it's 20 years that's almost hard to comprehend. And it's a couple miles. It's a couple miles. And I wonder what it says also to people who live in those neighborhoods. What does it say about what does the society care about you when that is the expectation growing up that a child born today, depending on what block they happen to be born in, can expect to live 20 years less in this time? I mean, back in 2009, when we first started doing our work with with infant mortality, a black baby was five times more likely to die in infancy than a white baby. I mean, what? how is that possible in a place where we're supposed to have the most advanced medical system? It's not just about the prenatal care that people get. It's not just about the ICU care, the NICU care that, that's available. It's about everything else in their lives. And I think that is the clearest illustration of the social determinants of health, that one of my heroes, Dr. America Bracco, said that the currency of inequality is years of life, and therefore that the opposite of poverty is health. And that's the only way that we can understand this, that it's not the health care that people get, it's the other things in their life that, that make it so. But you know, on the point about infant mortality, we decided to focus on that as one of our key areas. You know, it's also been said that if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. I think mm-hmm. for something like health, you could begin literally anywhere. Here, I will quote Senator Booker, who said that we cannot allow our inability to do everything undermine our determination to do something. I wrote it down because I thought that I might get it wrong and then it's going to sound strange. But we can't allow our inability to do everything undermine our ability to do something. And I think sometimes in addressing disparities, there's a tendency for us to focus on studying and admiring the problem and stopping at that. Because frankly, there's a lot to study and the statistics are really bad and it does get us angry and we can look at it and say, oh, there's so much to be done. And somehow, sometimes we feel paralyzed in thinking, what is it that I can actually do about it? And that's why we said, okay, we're going to focus on a few key areas. Infant mortality is one of them because it's so clear that if this is not a priority for us, who are we as a society, right? If we don't focus on taking care of our babies, what are we doing? And also, this is an indicator that World Health Organization, others recognize as a key public health indicator, too. And so we said, all right, there is a way for us to tackle this issue. And tackling this issue requires us to try to break down those barriers. You know, I think on the federal level, breaking down those barriers might be harder. I don't know how much would be involved in getting energy and commerce and health and all these other committees to merge their finances. I mean, I don't know how complicated Super that's going to be. Super easy. Congress moves very smoothly. <laughs> exactly. We see great examples of that every day. But, very um, agile. <laughs> so, well, I saw it as this is our opportunity to do that in the city. There is a way for us to try to break down these barriers and get our hospitals and federally qualified health centers and our neighborhood associations and sororities and groups that are doing something on infant mortality to all focus on one strategy, which we did. And within six years of the strategy being launched, it started under my predecessor of getting everyone involved in this one collective impact strategy where every single pregnant woman on Medicaid is triaged to a central system. They then get a different level of care depending on past experiences, their medical history, et cetera. They get social worker or a nurse or a community health worker to visit them, to teach about safe sleep, to teach about lead poisoning pre- prevention as a result of this program and this 
focus on our most vulnerable. We have reduced our infant mortality by over 30% citywide. We reduced teen birth rates by 36% citywide. I mean, there are, I think, examples like this that I can give that show that something can be done if we pool our resources on the local level and focus on one key priority. And I think that that's one way for us to begin to address these disparities. You know, frankly, our community, they know that these disparities didn't happen overnight. And I think if we said to our community, here are all these problems, we're going to solve them all. Nobody's going to believe us. But if we say we're going to solve one of these problems to demonstrate that we can do it, and then let's focus on another issue, I think that that's one big step in, in, in the right direction. When you do the research on infant mortality and when you begin to pull apart the different problems and contributors and determinants, what is there that people wouldn't expect? What makes this hard or what makes this happen? that is not obvious to somebody simply hearing the top line statistic? Part of what people may not see is the human face behind each of these children who died. And um, I know this is not exactly what you're asking, but I will get to it. There is a um, there is a committee that I chair in Baltimore called the Child Fatality Review Committee. And it's probably the worst thing that I do. I mean, it's the hardest thing that I do. Uh, it meets every month on a Monday and the Sunday before I physically feel feel ill thinking about this committee because we look at every case of children who died in the city. And around the table are all the different cities, state agencies, nonprofits, hospitals. We all, you know, so you have schools and social services and our hospitals and so forth, and police and state's attorney's office, we're reviewing all these cases of children who died. And in my medical practice, I've seen kids who died in my care. I don't forget any of those faces. And so those haunt me enough. And every month we look at every one of these kids who died, who I haven't met, but we review their uh, the, in depth their case. And what is the most disturbing, and I think what people don't see except the people who are there at the table, is that almost every single one of these cases, whether they are babies who died from from sleep-related infant deaths, whether they are two-year-olds who died from neglect or 15-year-olds who were shot, in nearly every one of the cases, every single agency has a thick file on that child, and every single agency has a thick file on their parents and other caregivers. And I think about these kids because I think about how many times that child has fallen through the cracks in some way. Each one of these agencies are supposed to be the safety net. And yet we weren't able to provide the safety net for that one child who slipped through and died. We weren't able to break the intergenerational poverty, the trauma that they went through. Many of their moms were also the victims of domestic violence. Many of their, many of their dads had addictions and were incarcerated and did not get help on reentry. I mean, we look at how many times this went through that we were not able to really address the root cause of the problems. And I think that that is what haunts me all the time. And therefore, the way that it applies to our work in infant mortality is I see it as public health and getting everyone around the table for this collective impact strategy. It's our chance to try to level that playing field. It's a chance for us to try to provide those safety nets in a different way. But if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that one thing that is true when you go back and do forensics on these cases mm -hmm. is that 
it is not the case that the first time the Baltimore government interacted with his child is when it got the notice of death. That oftentimes for these children who die young, there are a number of pings into the system. That's right. And the system was not able to put the pattern together or was not able to respond smartly enough or forcefully enough or effectively enough to any of the individual interactions to stop the eventual tragedy. That's right. The flip side of that, too, is if we looked at how many other cases of children also matched that pattern but did not die, mm-hmm. we would get tens and tens of thousands of kids who also match that profile. So the level of intervention is so broad that that number, the N of the how many kids we have to intervene on, mm-hmm. is so broad. You know, there has been talk about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And people have said to me over the years, just why don't we screen ACEs or screen for trauma for all of our kids in the city? And sure, we could do that. But what we're going to find is that all of our children will have ACEs, these childhood adverse childhood experiences scores through the roof. We're going to find that all of our children and our families have tra- have traumatic experiences through the roof. The question, though, is what are we going to do about it? And I see that as our biggest public health challenge. Of Once we recognize it, what can we do about it? And we start one at a time. Infant mortality, I feel like, is the basic level of what we can do. You know, I don't think that any parent... Their dream for their children is not just, my child should not die. I mean, that's kind of the basic level of what mm-hmm. you would want is your child should live. But we at least have to get to that. And then we can get to, to the next level of how can we enable our children to to succeed. Are you still able to practice medicine directly at all? I do. I work in urgent care in one of our free clinics in the city. I don't practice as much as I wish I did. I also really miss teaching. I mean, I do see lecture to our students at Hopkins, University of Maryland, Coppin State, Morgan State, some of our our other universities, and I really do enjoy that. But I, I miss both parts of it. I see my role. I know that, you know, my staff sometimes laugh at me for this, but I see my my role as being the doctor for the city. And I don't refer to the residents in our city necessarily as residents. I certainly don't call them constituents. Um, I still refer to them all as my patients, because ultimately I see my duty as if I see a problem like overdose, I mean, I we got legislation changed so that I became the single prescriber for Narcan to every single resident in our city. So, can you, can you explain what that what you just said? Because I I know about this and it's fascinating. We got legislation changed so that as of October of 2015, I issued a blanket prescription. So this is called a standing order. I issued a blanket prescription to. 620,000 residents to every resident in our city for Narcan because I, we've been saying and we strongly believe that every person can save a life, that everybody should carry Narcan in their medicine cabinet or their first aid kit. I have it in my purse at all times. So if we really believe that, we should enable it. It shouldn't just be. It used to be that you could only get Narcan if you are someone who uses opioids. Okay, that's important, except that if you are dying from an overdose, you can't really save your own life. That doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense. And then we said, okay, well, we should enable our police officers if we begin training our police officers. 
But it's not just police officers. What about our outreach workers who are uh, of my 1,000 employees, most of them work in the communities? Why shouldn't they also be carrying Narcan? They're doing home visits. What if they come upon someone, right? Why shouldn't, why not family and friends? So we thought the best way to do this is to say as long as you go through a basic training, and that training can happen as we're doing on street corners, in bars, in restaurants, in public housing, on trains, as long as you go through a couple-minute training that you're able to immediately get a prescription in my name, it is scary. To, to do a blanket signature and my national NPI, the national provider identification number, on all these blanket prescriptions. But we're trying to walk the walk and say, if we really believe that everyone can save a life, then we have to enable it to make it happen. What is the best piece of advice you've gotten along the way? Best piece of advice that I've gotten, I learned so much from other people that I have to think about that one for a minute. Um, Probably the best piece of advice that I got was from a mentor of mine when I was thinking about taking this job. And I was thinking that my life before was, I felt like I was making a difference. I had a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I really enjoyed the different parts of, of my work. And this seemed like a a risk. And it was a risk and remains a, a risk when that I embrace, I embrace, but is still a risk. My, and my mentor said to me, you should never take a job that you are afraid to be fired from. And I think about that every day because, frankly, I do stick my neck out every day, all the time. I talk about funding issues. I hold people accountable for, for funding. I talk about issues like gun violence is a public health issue, racism is a public health issue, things that may not be very popular. Certainly, I've stopped looking at comments on Twitter, on other things, because there are some very unhappy comments that that, that come through. On Twitter? No. That's exactly, ridiculous. Right? Who would, nobody would write unkind words on Twitter. But, um, but, you know, I've also learned, though, that this is why I'm here. I mean, I've been given all these really amazing opportunities and my parents sacrificed so much so that I would be in this position to make a difference. And if I love my job so much, I do love, I love my job a lot, but if I love it so much that I am afraid to do the right thing simply because I might lose my job, that's when I know that I need to leave this job because that would be weighing myself over the people that I serve. And that's just not who I would want to be. I mean, I would be perfectly happy practicing medicine and teaching. That is always in the back of my mind. If I'm ever struggling with, should I speak out on this issue? I mean, I would never do want to do anything that's inaccurate or that would put anyone else in harm's way. But if I'm afraid to speak up because of the impact it has on me, then there's a problem. You know, we faced a situation like that recently. There's a program that we operate in the health department called Safe Streets. It's based on the National Cure Violence model where we hire people who are from the communities that, that they serve or former, many of whom are former gang members or drug dealers, to walk the streets of the city and they mediate violence. That program has been highly successful. Every year they save hundreds of lives. And yet, again, because of the issue of funding for prevention, this program's funding was threatened. And... I had to stick out my neck to talk about why this program needs to be funded. And potentially, I did think, and a lot of people warned me that I was going too far in my advocacy of this program. But then I thought about the people who are working every day. I mean, these are individuals who are out on the streets every day. 
they only have their word. They're interacting with people all the time with weapons. These are people who would lose their livelihoods if this program were to stop and at a time that they finally found a way to turn it around. And I think if it's something I can do to stick on my, my neck just a little bit, when these individuals are doing this every day, then that's my, my, my duty to do so. What are three books you've read that influenced you and you think you would recommend to the audience? I have a slightly embarrassing story to tell about this. And, you know, I, I know that that's something that, that, that you ask all your guests. And so I've been thinking about this. My initial thought for, for these books was a travel book because I met my husband while looking for a travel book on, on South Africa. So that definitely influenced my life. I don't know that like I you were at a bookstore and you bumped in yeah. sort of Notting Hill style. It was very Notting Hill style. I happened to London also. So it's well, very there you go. Notting Hill. But I'm... Is your husband Hugh Grant? <laughs> Um, I, my, my, my husband is a lovely man <laughs> who, who, um, who I, I do feel very fortunate about. I mean, I think all of us are very fortunate to have the spouses that we do who are supportive of, of our work. But um, I don't know that I would recommend for everyone to go to a bookstore and read a book on, on South Africa in order to meet their, their husband. So I might have to, or their spouses, so that I, I, I might have to change that. But um, the other books that have really influenced me, the first one probably is the most embarrassing I read Bill Clinton's autobiography, and that one book completely changed the course of my life. Really? <laughs> I've always assumed that that book would be difficult to read, that it would just be a lot of it. And then I met with this guy, and he's great. It's a good book? There was one very specific part of the book that... Again, I was naive and idealistic, and I thought, okay, this is, I mean, and you have to, the context, let me set the context. I was in medical school at the time. I had finally come to terms with my stuttering. I was finally beginning to acknowledge who I was, and up until then, I didn't really have friends. I mean, I kept everyone at arm's length. In a way, I was the perfect Asian student, right? Like the perfect tiger mom, daughter, or whatever, because even though my mom was not a tiger mom, but I was probably every Asian mom's dream because I studied all the time. I camped out in libraries, not because I really wanted to study all the time, but because I just didn't have friends. And that was my way, perhaps, of, of compensating. But I was lonely. I didn't have friends. And I was finally realizing at that moment, wow, I want to have friends. I want to be close to people. And um, and I also wanted to have the experience of not just being in my very narrow field, which I didn't think was getting me to what I wanted to do. And so I read his book, not because I had that in mind, but because I just happened to, 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 to read his book. And I read about Bill Clinton's experience as a Rhodes Scholar. And I had never heard of the Rhodes Scholarship. I didn't know anyone who had applied for Rhodes. I still didn't. At the, at the time that I interviewed for the Rhodes, I think that was the first time that I met any Rhodes Scholar. But I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship because I wanted to have Bill Clinton's experience at Oxford. Oh, interesting. He talked about the friends that he had throughout his life who he made at Oxford. And I thought, I want that. And I also never had any opportunity to explore I was always so focused on studying what I needed to study because, again, I, I all I knew was getting good grades so that I could get into medical school, so that I could be on scholarship, so that I didn't have to burden my parents. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. only thing that I knew. And I thought, how great would it be to look at, to learn other fields? 
so that I actually can address these other things outside of medicine. So reading his book completely changed the course of my life. And Rhodes then was where I made amazing friends who are my best friends now, the best man at my wedding, the my maid of honor, me, all these, you know, my husband I, I met when, uh, even though he was not Rhodes, I met when I was in, in London. I mean, my life completely changed as a result of reading his book. And I think being there and having that broad exposure also gave me confidence to explore a lot of other fields versus I think otherwise I would have practiced medicine, loved it, but then not had the, I wouldn't have had the worldview to explore the other areas that I did. So very long story to say, I don't know that I've ever admitted this on the record before because this is really a little embarrassing, but books do change people's lives. And the other two that I think are very important, particularly for my work now, there is a book called Prayer for My City about the mayor of Philadelphia who just would not quit. I think that speaks to this spirit that I hope that I will exemplify also that no matter what comes your way, you just got to get up and go for it and try it again. And it doesn't work and you got to try it again. I, so I think that spirit is one that I really enjoyed about reading. And this is like the nothing is impossible aspect. And then the last book is the third book is Not in My Backyard. And that book, I forgot the author for that book, but it is a it's written by someone in Baltimore about the practices that have gotten us to where we are, and particularly the, the discriminatory housing practices and redlining that got the city to where we are now. And it's a reminder that things didn't just happen. And I think it's important for us to recognize that no matter what issue we're talking about, we didn't, whether it's police reform or violence or poverty or whatever, this is not just how things are meant to be. I don't believe that things were just meant to be. Things happened because of historical legacies of whatever. Our mass incarceration didn't just happen overnight. Policing, police brutality didn't just happen over. Things happened because of choices that were made by our predecessors that got us to where we are. But that's why also things are not just going to happen to get us out of it, too. It's going to take time. And I think that our residents understand that there's no magic bullet. There's no person who is going to deliver and, and be the savior. But we have to be mindful of the intention that went into how we got here and similarly be mindful of what it is that we're going to do to get ourselves out of it. Commissioner Alina Wen, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Lena Wen. Uh, thank you so much to her for being here. To my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and it will be back with another episode. Yes, another episode next week. 